Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's switch gears from the markets a little bit. Talk about um, pay and the pay gaps, the gender pay gaps. We've heard a lot about this issue. It's uh, not getting better by many standards, and maybe the pandemic made it even worse. And it's certainly affecting all parts of the economy. And that includes uh, MBAs as well. Alyssa Sangster joins us. She's CEO of Forte Foundation. Alyssa, thanks so much for joining us here. So talk to us about the MBA market. Um, I'm on the board of the MBA per school at Duke, so I, I kind of know the data here. But just share with us, what's the difference, the pay uh, gender gap for MBA students when they get out and then maybe even later in their career? Sure, that's great. I'd, I'd love to say that, you know, we're seeing improvement um, across the board, but of course, every rose has its thorn. Um, and on the bright side, we're seeing MBA gender pay gap overall shrink from around 40% two years ago to about 20% now. So between men and women, I'm not saying the gap's gone, but it definitely has um, improved. And where is that improvement impetus coming from? Is that on companies that these graduates are applying for? Is it MBA schools themselves trying to help even things out? Um, I, you know, I think it's a, a combination of factors. I think we're seeing more women in the MBA pipeline uh, pursuing these um, top careers. So I think you're seeing them have access to more of those high-paying salaries. Um, and I think you're seeing companies pay more attention to it over the last few years about how they're advancing um, employees internally and making sure that there is equitable advancement um, across all of those top paying jobs. You know, Alyssa, one of the things that I've seen or experienced personally in my career having managed people um, is that oftentimes, you know, MBAs will, male and female, it, it will come in at the, a similar or this exact same compensation package. Um, but then things go awry from there. Uh, that's where the women will lag in future years. And so when you get to the partner or managing right. director level, there is by far, there, there's not a fair representation. What are the challenges there and, and what are some of the ways to address those? Sure. So um, I definitely think different choices um, are made. And so I think there's kind of a combination of uh, decisions by the companies and also by the individuals pursuing opportunities. And so I think we see in our research that women end up several years later having fewer direct reports. They have had fewer promotions than their male counterparts. And so um, exactly what's behind all that um, is not uh, specifically clear. Like I said, it is a combination of things. But I also think that women are often motivated by um, their impact on the organization, their um, um, they're motivated by kind of the value that they see that they're contributing. They're less um, motivated by achieving that top salary and that being the indicator of their success. And so I think that you see women making maybe very different choices um, about which path they take in their career. And mm -hmm. often it might be walking away from a top salary at a big company and going to a smaller company where they feel like they have bigger impact maybe not as big a pay. If we kind of step back and take a look at the 30,000 foot view, an MBA mm -hmm. isn't cheap, right? It, it costs you a lot of money to invest in getting that additional education. Does it still pay off? It definitely does in, in your long-term career earnings and in the opportunities that are available to you. And so I think that 
often what you see, especially in these full-time programs you mentioned, Duke, students are coming through this program as career switchers, and they are looking to pivot in their career and go into something that they would not have had access to normally without that MBA experience or pathway. So it's opportunity to top jobs working for um, very um, important uh, companies and, and places that they can do amazing things. And so those opportunities aren't always available to you without that pivot. And I will say that one of the things Forte Foundation does is supply scholarships through our business mm. schools for women pursuing those MBAs. So they are given opportunities, those top uh, women uh, candidates, to pursue these MBAs with a substantial uh, scholarship support. So, uh, Alyssa, can you give us maybe some examples or an example of an industry or a company that's doing this well, that it's narrowing that, that gender pay pay gap? Um, I think that, uh, that I, I, well, I don't know that I have a specific company um, or industry. I would say though that the, com- the, the companies that are out there working um, at this, I, I, you know, at graduation, you mentioned they're all um, on parity, but as they, um, progress through their career, I think the monitoring of that is probably something that the bigger companies are doing better because they are uh, required to uh, pay attention to these things from external uh, forces. Um, and, and additionally, they are very internally committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so they have big operations inside that are actually monitoring this. And honestly, those who are monitoring it are the ones that are going to be seeing the success. That doesn't mean that they can eliminate all of the other factors in terms of decision making by the women, but they are looking at how they advance um, diverse um, uh, employees through that pipeline into leadership. All right, Alyssa, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Alyssa Sangster, CEO of Forte Foundation, talking about the gender uh, pay gap. Uh, that is an issue, clearly, uh, for a lot of businesses and a lot of people, uh, including MBAs. Consumer confidence came out for the month of September. Still a pretty good number, but below expectations. Uh, let's check in with uh, Lynn Franco, Director of Economic Indicators and Surveys at the Conference Board to break down this data. So, Lynn, again, a little bit less than what Wall Street was expecting, but still a decent number. Help us put it into context. Yes. I mean, you know, we had a decline in confidence, and it's actually sort of been on a downward trend for the last uh, three months. But a lot of this is really doing uh, really the result of the Delta variant, which has really sort of been this dark cloud over consumers. It continues to dampen optimism, uh, but they're still optimistic enough that they feel that the recovery is going to continue not only for the remainder of this year, but into 2022 as well. I find the data around the labor market particularly interesting. We were just listening to uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell testifying on Capitol Hill in front of the Senate about how participation is still really low. There's a lot of jobs out there, but not necessarily enough people to fill them. And I see that in the survey, 56% of consumers said that jobs are plentiful. So people know there's jobs out there. Yes, they do. And I think what we're seeing is that some of these labor shortages are in uh, sort of, uh, you know, blue collar type jobs. Um, some of that is due, A, to, uh, you know, inability to find labor. There's still some, you know, fears about COVID. Uh, there's still some child care issues, which are preventing um, women in particular from getting back into the labor force. So there are some challenges um, that we are still facing, and a lot of those are uh, Delta related. So I think as we begin to sort of hopefully see uh, the variant uh, retreat a bit. I think we're seeing at least some indications maybe that, uh, you know, the levels are starting to come down, that we'll continue to recover, and that, uh, you know, the employment growth uh, will be a little bit more robust. And 
the expectations index, which is based on consumers' short-term outlook for income, business, and labor market conditions, that fell to 86.6 from 92.8. Is that concerning to you? I think what we're just seeing here is a very cautious uh, consumer, right? So we've seen a little bit of uh, a decline in their expectations for the economy over the short term, uh, jobs in particular also, uh, a little less so in income. So that's good news because uh, we expect uh, consumers to continue to spend and support economic growth. But I think it's going to be very uh, important to see what happens over the next month or two because uh, I think we've shifted gears from a very optimistic consumer early in the summer to a more cautious optimistic heading into the fall. How do inflation expectations factor into this as well? Because to this point, consumers have been pretty tolerant of the fact that prices have been going up because of higher input costs. But at a certain level, I would imagine that they're going to become less tolerant and that fears around inflation would affect behavior. Uh, right. It you know, te- generally tends to impact uh, consumers' uh, perceptions of earning power, and we would see that sort of in the income expectations. Our interest rate um, expectations actually fell, so that's good news. It's still elevated, um, but uh, it's, it's fallen off a little bit. And so far, we really haven't seen it have a major impact on spending. Supplemental unemployment benefits uh, began expiring for a lot of people in early uh, September How did that factor into the data or the expectations data? I think, you know, it really factors into perhaps uh, income expectations, uh, but we didn't take a hard hit there. Uh, In terms of employment expectations, that's pretty much following business conditions, right? We need better business conditions in in order to generate uh, more employment. So I think, you know, in both ways, consumers are just a little bit uh, cautious. They probably hit the pause button uh, temporarily, but we don't think this is sort of a, a continued downward trend. All right, Lynn, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Lynn Franco, Director of Economic Indicators and Surveys at the Conference Board on the Consumer Confidence Data out this morning for the month of September. That was Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, along with Fed Chairman Jay Powell, testimony in front of uh, members of Congress. Uh, Let's get a little bit of a recap there. We can do that with Bloomberg's economics editor, Michael McKee. Michael, first of all, why are these two individuals testifying in front of Congress? Why are they bringing their testimony? This is a relic of the CARES Act. When the CARES Act was passed, it required the Secretary of the Treasury and the Fed Chairman to come up to Capitol Hill quarterly and report on how things are going in terms of spending out the money and the rescue programs that they had in place. So it's a bit of a relic now since most of the money has been distributed, but it's still in place, so, um, so they are there. Obviously, this is used in part to do some political posturing on the behalf of these senators. A lot of debate on the fiscal conversation that doesn't necessarily have bearing for the Fed chairman. Uh, but asked about the debt ceiling uh, was the Treasury secretary, and she warned about it being potentially disastrous if it isn't raised, saying that these are bills that are already due for money that's already been spent. Why does the market seem to not care about it then at this point? because we've been through this before and a number of times over the past couple of decades and congress has always extended the debt ceiling at the very last minute it's a political football both sides like to attack the other side for being (laughs) profligate Uh, they only want to uh, spend money when they're in power 
And when they're not in power, they want to cut back <laughs> on spending because they think it makes them look better politically. So that's what's going on. It's just, a, as you mentioned, a political debate. And the market is fairly convinced that they will settle this because they always have. And on meanwhile, on the sidelines, the commentators, as they usually do, say, well, gee, this time could be different. <laughs> <laughs> well, what could be a little bit different this time is it's all kind of tied in with the fiscal stimulus legislation, the uh, the spending plan that Congress is also looking at, the taxation uh, plan to pay for it. Could this all get tied up? Is this something that the market maybe should be more concerned about? Well, if, if we get to that point, the market will suddenly become concerned. Okay. It, is, it is a little more problematic this time. There's a little bit of a Rube Goldberg effect of how they're going to have to do this because the, the Democrats put forth a combined a continuing resolution to keep the government funded and debt ceiling last night. Republicans wouldn't even let them have a vote on it. And so now the Democrats have to decide are they going to take out the continuing resolution and vote on that separately, which they probably will, which still leaves the debt limit. Republicans still say they will not allow the Democrats to vote on extending it. And so the Democrats can put it into the continuing resolution, or rather continue into the reconciliation bill that holds the Biden plan. But the problem with that is then they need to pass a new budget first with that as an instruction. And then mm -hmm. they need to go through a whole a whole day of what they call Votorama where anybody's allowed to offer amendments. And so it will take yeah. time for that to happen. <laughs> and I think that's why Janet Yellen put a date on it this time because she's saying basically, uh, guys, don't screw around. This is how much, t if you're gonna do this, this is how much time you have. Yeah, that's all on the fiscal side, Mike. On the monetary policy side and those who have the ability to decide monetary policy, Senator Sherrod Brown asked both Yellen and Powell about diversity on the Fed Board of Governors and whether it's time to have a black woman. And especially in light of the resignations of Rosengren and Kaplan yesterday in the wake of the trading scandal, how could we be looking at a different Fed going forward? Well, I think you're going to see in the search committees for both Dallas and Boston a strong effort to find minorities, whether it's a, a black or whether it's a woman. I mean, it could be Hispanic. In uh, Dallas, in particular, would mm -hmm. be a sort of logical move. So I think you're going to see that, and I think the Fed board will try to influence that. The Fed has historically been a refuge of old white males, and as was pointed out, there are very few black economists at the board, and I think Congress is going to continue to keep the pressure on, and we will see some changes. In a historic day yesterday, you don't, it's not every day you see two Fed presidents step down is this going to change the way the fed man you know it puts people onto the board or just or attracts talent uh, it could i think what you'll see is the fed put in place a much more robust set of ethics requirements perhaps anybody coming in would be required to put their holdings in a blind trust something like that uh which you know, you can easily argue should have been done before. What they don't want to do is completely keep anybody who's made any money off the board because, yes, the board needs diversity, but that also means they need some people with market experience. Right. And so, uh, you know, Rob Kaplan came from Goldman Sachs. He was one of the strong market voices, and that's a loss for them at this mm -hmm. point. Yep. All right. Michael McKee, uh, economics editor for Bloomberg TV and radio. Thank you so much for your thoughts. We appreciate that. Well, just about 20 minutes ago, Kaylee and I were just sitting here chatting, saying, 
Boy, the supply chain, this is a big issue, the challenges we're facing on a global scale. And uh, I wonder to what extent that they're contributing to some of this inflation we're seeing out there. And I said, we need to get smarter on what's <laughs> going on out there with the ships and the trains and the trucks. And luckily, we have Bloomberg Intelligence uh, with us, and they have the experts in all these industries. Lee Klaskow, he's the senior transport logistics and shipping analyst, one of the most popular analysts these days uh, at Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Lee, I'm looking at MapGo on my terminal. I see a bunch of cargo ships anchored off the coast of Los Angeles, and then even if they get their cargo unloaded, then the, the trucks have to get the containers and the railroads have to get the uh, containers. Give us an overview of how bad things are out there in terms of global shipping, global logistics, uh, and how do we get here? The, the supply chains are truly gummed up, and you know the the how we got to this point, uh, which the, the the shocks to the system have really been unprecedented, and just one after the other. I mean, obviously, economy shut down with the pandemic, and then China recovered quicker and earlier than the U.S., and that created a lot of imbalances uh, in the Trans-Pacific trade. So there were ships coming uh, to Southern California and other points unloading um, containers, but there were no empty containers to bring back, and that created a, um, a capacity crunch on the water. And also, the container liner industry has a long history of just being completely irrational players. They got a little disciplined uh, during this down cycle, and they took some ships out, uh, and they slowly brought them back. Uh, so that created um, also some some choke points, uh, and then it was like one black swan after the next. You know, you had the the uh, the Ever Given uh, blocking the Suez Canal. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, you had um, you just one thing after another. You had the rail industry embrace something called precision scheduling railroading, which is really uh, just six sigma for the rails. And that impacted service probably not in the best way as well because they were, you know, taking uh, assets off of, of their network. And then when demand came uh, up, you know, they were slow to bring back those assets. Um, yeah. You know, you, ha you have huge log jams in Chicago, which has always been a problem. Um, and the rails have been doing what they can uh, to kind of alleviate those choke points. And, and not to just to, 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 to ramble on too long, but really it's all about available labor. Um, you know, mm. every transportation company is facing a labor shortage. Uh, you know, your listeners might remember last week when FedEx released their earnings, yeah. uh, they pointed out about $450 million of a headwind. Um, that's a lot of coin. Uh, and, and that's just trying to find enough people to, uh, to deliver the packages. And when they have holes in their system, you know, it creates a much uh, less efficient network for them. So, Lee, is basically what you're telling us here that it is a lot easier to create kinks in the supply chain than it is to smooth them back out? Yeah, and 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 that is a because we're more of you know it's for due to globalization. I mean, we're still a global economy. The Nikes that you might be wearing are being uh, manufactured in Vietnam or in China, and with China's zero tolerance uh, towards uh, COVID uh, outbreaks, you know you're seeing them shutting down terminals uh, at, at various ports, very mm -hmm. busy ports, and that's creating headwinds as well. And then you know when you have on the U.S. side. Um, you know, you just don't have enough people to to kind of 
face that backlog. I mean, I read the other day on Bloomberg, there was something like 78 um, ships waiting outside of LA Long Beach. These are unprecedented times, uh, and it's going to take a long time. You know, our call for um, rates, on at least on the liner side, you know, we believe things will get a little better into the Chinese New Year, but rates will remain above, above, like at these unsustainable levels probably through the first half of the year, and then kind of moderate uh, uh, into the second half. Um, and then you have on, on the roadside for trucking in North America. You know, spot rates are up uh, something like 40% this year. Wow. Uh, contractual rates are up double digits. Um, they have pricing power because they can't find the people to drive the trucks to deliver the stuff. So when you talk to these transportation companies, whether the big shipping companies or the rails and trucks, is this a supply chain problem that's going to go into next year? I mean, hard stop. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, wow. it's, it's, it's going to be uh, an impact. I mean, I think that it will moderate, you know, um, you know, and but that's assuming a lot of things. That's assuming a, not another black swan event or another, you know, uh, variant of the coronavirus, which could shut down, whether it's manufacturing um, or uh, or ports. And then you also have right now, I mean, you have another kind of crazy thing. We're talking about China having not enough power. Um, So uh, they have to manage their economy and they might close some manufacturing. So, you know, if you're expecting, you know, some furniture from from China, you you might have to wait another month. All right, Lee, thanks so much for jumping on with us. Really appreciate it. This is a global issue. It is one that's been developing since the uh, pandemic began, and it doesn't appear to be uh, uh, easing anytime soon. Lee Klaskow, Senior Transport, Logistics and Shipping Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone from Bloomberg's Princeton office. Uh, And Kaylee, this is something, you know, I'm sure is earnings coming up here once again. We're going to have companies probably blaming this, using it as an excuse, perhaps. It's or like just the saying, weather, right? Yes. Yeah, but I think we're going to see some serious margin pressures coming in, which is to be expected that profit margins would contract. It's what a lot of analysts and strategists are expecting. But when you talk about those higher input costs, higher freight costs, higher labor costs, all that yep. is cost. And is it transitory? That's going to be the big question. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.